and I'm Lee Vale, your main presenter, I suppose. And I want to personally thank, you know, Jerry Tamino who's not here for organizing this first beatnik shindig. I don't know whether to cringe or applaud <laughs> that title. And um, surprise of all is we have a last-minute edition in the form of, I think, one of the greatest living, most poetic, visionary writers alive on the planet, Rudy Rucker. We'll have a we'll end with a fifteen minute Q and A on Rudy writing his Burroughs book, with your permission. So I guess Rudy is also gonna do something super spontaneous to introduce me. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rudy and I'm happy to be here. It's uh I love doing things with Marion and Vale. They're two of the coolest people I know. And uh, actually last week, Vale is doing an anthology of his writings in Brazil, I think. It's excerpts of research and the, the punk scene. And uh, so anyway, I wrote a, a preface which can serve as his introduction today. One day they'll be wondering what it was like to occupy the space-time continuum running from, say, 1970 to 2010, right along the inseam of America's trousers, amid the lice and punks and freaks and writers and rockers and artists and carnival midgets and tattooed women and anarchists, working our way towards the crotch. Any intrepid investigator must, perforce, turn to the oeuvre of V. Vale, the historians, the flying saucers, the day-tripping time machines, and the ravening hyperworms from sub-dimension G, they're all coming here, and you're here too, stoked to dig Vale's gnarly scenes. <laughs> How did this unassuming man enter into so many strange subcultures? Why did they trust him? Partly it's the persona he wore. I must have hung with Vale a dozen times by now, and he's invariably the same, cheerful, tidy, with a well-trimmed mop of hair, usually in the company of his charming, vibrant fellow traveler, Marion Wallace. Vale is considerate, polite, ready to laugh, and with an ear for gossip. Love, loves stories. A natural bon vivant who finds luxury and joy in what fucking ever turns up. What I mean is, for Vale, a cheap lunch counter is as resplendent as a palace. Because he has the eyes to see into the sub-dimensions, endlessly diverted by the ongoing action along the inseam of these space-time trousers. Needless to say, Vale is adamantly opposed to everything that the dominant mass culture stands for. He doesn't make a big thing of this. It's simply his natural stance. For Vale and his followers, among whom I proudly number myself, counterculture is the breath of life. The military, the politicians, the CEOs, the ad agencies, the media producers were invisible to them, beneath contempt. And if the high pigs do, by some wild chance, become briefly aware of us, well, we're in for figure-wagging lectures, jail time, shock treatments, drug therapy, and if all goes well, a one-way trip to the abattoir of a phony war. Like Vale, my preferred defense is to utterly reject such constructs as normality, mental health, 
and the so-called wisdom of crowds. If most people believe something, then it's fucking wrong, okay? <laughs> we with Vail care about the rhythms of speech, the flow of emotions, the physical poetry of the flesh, nature's exquisite chaos, and the raucous squeal of technology improperly used. We turn our backs on finance, war, public safety, and the daily news. We'd rather read rants by nuts and gawk at weird pictures. And ah, yes, it seems we've got a fine, fine load of that primo beyond the pale shit right here. Let's dig in. Thank you, Vale and Marion. Long may you wave. Rudy, tell us about your All right. latest this book. Yeah, this is uh, my novel, Turing and Burroughs, and it uh, features a a love affair between Alan Turing and William Burroughs. And uh, I, like Vail, also got interested in, in Burroughs when I was quite young, around 19... Oh, maybe I was a sophomore in high school, 1960, something like that. And my brother subscribed to Evergreen Review, and I read some excerpts of Naked Lunch in there. And I thought, well, this, this is the most interesting thing I've ever read. And then... Uh, I was very, always very interested in the Beats, uh, Kerouac and uh, Ginsberg, and Burroughs maybe, I, I came back to him a lot. Uh, like they, the, the cut-up books, they, I do like them, but uh, they, it's also, when he wants to, he can really you know, write a, a plot, and that's sort of, he, he'll have passages that are sort of like vintage pulp science fiction. I like those a lot. Anyway, um, so I wanted to do a novel. I've always been interested in Alan Turing, and he was the... He got a lot of publicity. They made a movie of his life. Uh, I guess that was last year. And it was called The Imitation Game. And I actually published a story about Turing called The Imitation Game about seven or eight years ago, but... Uh, they didn't acknowledge that. Wow. Which? I'm you a check. Oh no, no. Oh, heaven forbid. Well, I had my agent call them, but they wouldn't give us the time of day. You can't copyright a title, and the imitation game was a phrase that Turing himself used. And uh, the basic underlying idea in this book is that Turing, his suicide was actually faked. Uh, the British Secret Service assassinated him because he was a homosexual and he knew state secrets. In particular, he knew about the decoding project they did in the war. And that was, uh, was sort of a secret secret. It was in some way more secret than nuclear weapons. People didn't know it had been done. And the movie gave the impression that Turing was conflicted about being homosexual, but he wasn't conflicted at all. He would tell people right away and then you know, see if something was going to work out. It, it, he wasn't tortured particularly about it. And uh, so then I thought it would be cool if Turing uh, managed to escape getting poisoned, and then where would he go? And I, I had this idea, well, what if he, he fled to, to Tangier? And this was right when Burroughs was living there, and I thought it would be great if they met. And then uh, so part of it... There's a couple of things that were hard for me. I mean, to completely get my head into, you know, the life of uh, sort of a homosexual way of looking at life, 
I'd always liked Burroughs' way of being homosexual, that sort of unrepentant and vulgar and open about it. And then, uh, so Turing finds a way to turn his body into a, a giant slug, <laughs> which fits perfectly with Burroughs' lifestyle. <laughs> and they, they turn into, both turn into giant slugs, and they're hanging from the ceiling, and they wrap each other around each other, and they're having sex. And then this is when they're visiting Burroughs' house, and his mother walks in on them. <laughs> and uh, so I have a lot of fun with that. And then another thing in the book that I wanted to, if you're going to write a book about Burroughs, you sort of have to come to terms with the fact that he shot his wife. And sometimes people will try to minimize that or say, well, that, was, that helped him with his writing career, or she was a drunk, you know, she was asking for it. And you can't do that. I mean, I had to actually give it a fair treatment. So what I had them do is they go down to Mexico and they find, I, I looked up, Grauerholtz wrote an interesting article uh, or an essay about the, the, the killing of Joan. And there's a lot of pictures from the Mexican newspapers at that time. It was a big sort of scandal, like, like the way a lurid crime story would be played up uh, in the U.S. And uh, I found out where she was buried. And so my concept was they would go and get a bone out of her grave. And then uh, they had this special sort of slug juice they were using to make things happen. And then they sort of, they basically raised her from the dead. And then she shoots Burroughs. <laughs> but it doesn't kill him because by this time he's part giant slug, you know. And so it, it knocks him for a loop, but, you know, he's still around. So that, uh, that sort of satisfied me that I gave her equal time. And then I could go on with the book. This was at the, I published about 40 books and... At the, when I came up with this book, then I couldn't get it published. Uh, <laughs> so I, I got into self-publishing, and that's what I've been doing for the last few years. It's, uh, it's like the, the game has sort of changed. You got a question for me, Bill? Wait, how can everyone in the room self-publish? Well, it's, well, how do you self-publish? Well, my day job for all this time, I was a professor of computer science at San Jose State. And uh, so I'm starting as a professor of computer science, and then I want to learn how to self-publish. So it took me seven months. So it's, it's not trivial. There's a, basically, you make a PDF out of the book, and you send it to Amazon, and then they print the books when people order them. It's, I mean, making a PDF that looks good, it's... A, the issue is using some software called InDesign. It's uh, from Adobe. It's, it's very, very hard to use. It's the most difficult software I ever used in my life. It makes this Microsoft Visual C++ debugger look easy. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it's, uh, but it can be done. It, it all depends on how good you want the book to look. You can just use a Word file. But, uh, yeah, anyway... Uh, part of the chapters in here were written from Burroughs' point of view, and I had a lot of fun channeling him. I've always liked his letters a lot. Another of the Burroughs books that I really like is Letters to Allen Ginsberg. That's a, that's a great book. It's, uh, if I ever started feeling sorry for my parents, I'd never stop. I'm a disappointment, but having gone this far, I'd be a fool not to go further. 
My word hoard is compost to make lovely lilies bloom. <laughs> Too bad you and me didn't contact personal, but I couldn't make it to California with all them conditionals you was laying down, Alan. Why are you scared of mind melt? Our buddy-buddy microscopic symbiotes do it all the time. Dysenteric amoeba Bill meets sexy in his bristles paramecium Al. They rub pellicles, ah, the exquisite prickling, my dear, and schlup, my protoplasm is yours, old thing. The two of us conjugated into a snot wad so cozy. <laughs> he always was more hot for Alan than Alan was for him, because he was old. <laughs> <laughs> I see me in a mother Billy Hubbard ectoplasmic gown, tatting anti-macassars to drape over that harumph guy apparatus of yours. <laughs> anyway... Uh, so it's, uh, I always wanted to do something like the Beats, and then uh, in the early 80s, I got connected with some guys, and we became the cyberpunks, Bruce Sterling and William Gibson. So we had sort of a thing that in some ways was a little bit like the Beats, and I was sort of the, well, Gibson was sort of the Kerouac, because he wrote the bestsellers, and Sterling was sort of the Allen Ginsberg, because he was the polemicist. And so I got to be the William Burroughs. I was the, the old professor. <laughs> and I don't always wear sunglasses, but when I got here, while I was walking over from my car, I lost my regular glasses. So it's, a, it's sort of cosmic that I'm at the beat con, so I can only wear shades. <laughs> so I, I don't mean to be impersonal. <laughs> but... Uh, well, these are Ray-Bans, you know. Ooh. JFK. Those are vintage. JFK wore these, yeah. Uh, I, got, I got a question for you guys. Good, thank you. Like, I, I agree with, uh, with you that the interviews and everything are more sci-fi than the books. And, like, he seems like, Burroughs seems like the kind of guy that, like, you don't know if he believes what he's saying or if he's just weaving a, a tail at, off the cuff. These theories, yeah, yeah. I liked what Marion did with that, that video of, like, it just got more and more batshit, his theories. That <laughs> the six, or is it eight afterlifes, you know, the... <laughs> souls. Souls, yeah. Though, I mean, Naked Lunch, if you look at it in a certain light, it is science fiction. I mean, there's these, you know, giant blobby creatures, and they're, you know, eating each other and, you know, getting drugs out of each other's bodies. It's... Uh, the name science fiction tends to be took to mean that it's it's shit for morons, but <laughs> science fiction can have a literary aspect, you know. But uh, and I think there, Burroughs was in some ways a science fiction writer, but uh, and he he probably wouldn't be averse to saying that. I didn't get to spend as much time with him as Vale. I only once met him for five or ten minutes. Yeah. You said in passing before you made a reference that you channeled, you enjoy channeling him. Yeah. The same way, um, you know, because that could be literally, you know, if there's a technique that you're feeling like you're talking about, or is it like an imaginal channeling, or are you, are you trying to... Uh, well, it's a technique... Well, I have a word for it. I, I call it twinking. It's a word I made up. I make up a lot of words since I'm a science fiction. So twink. And, and that's when I, I read so much of somebody, I get such a, 
a model of them going in my head that then I can sit down and write like they would write. And I did that with Burroughs. And then in one of my novels, I had a, I guess it was wetware. I had a character who talked like Kerouac. And while I was writing it, I had visions of Cody next to me on the desk. And then I would open that up and read it for a page. And then, you know, I'd have the rhythm just right. And then I could go, you know, lay that down. And uh, Edgar Allan Poe, too, I had a, he was the main character in my novel, The Hollow Earth. And I pretty much read everything he wrote. And I got, got sort of sick of him. You know, he's so full of crap. You know? <laughs> but, so I kept like, subjecting him to these really hideous torments. <laughs> like, like he tries to stay away on a, a whaling ship, an ex exploration ship with his girlfriend. And they're in this, this box below decks. But he has all these supplies in there. And he figures they can just stay in this box for three months. And, but then the, the woman dies while they're in there. And, and then Poe comes out, and he's got her teeth in his hand. He, he treasures her teeth, <laughs> which is just the kind of thing he would do. You know? But uh, anyway, yeah, but I, I like to get into these guys. And, yeah, I have three or four chapters from Burroughs' point of view. I wanted to bring a lot of these today. Uh, I have a couple in the car, but you can also get them online if you go to rudyrucker.com slash Turing and Burroughs. With, along with that Poe thing, Aaron Poe made up a bunch of words. He's, he's credited with inventing like 200 words or something like that. And uh, I wonder if you guys are hip to Burroughs doing anything like that. Because he seems like he makes up phrases. Yeah, phrases and words. And you know, there's like a glossary of Burroughisms. He has certain. He has two. There's two phrases he used a lot. Uh, heavy metal. Yeah, heavy metal. That's a Burroughs word. That, that whole genre of music that's based on... There's a, one of his characters is called Willie the Heavy Metal Kid. And he was using heavy metal in the sense of mercury, which is poisonous. And there's two, two phrases he liked to use a lot. And uh, one of them was unspeakably toothsome. He uses that several times. It's like you're eating somebody's brain. It's unspeakably toothsome. And then the centipede will come out and it's indescribably loathsome. <laughs> so he uses these words a lot. He, know that he had another, he had a creature, a parasite creature called the happy cloak that he wrote about several times. And it sort of lives on your back and uh, it puts tendrils into your spine and uh, it takes over your brain, the happy cloak. And it's great, there's this, it's, somebody put, puts a happy cloak on someone and he's sort of giggling. He says, skin like that, very hot, two or three days, then wearing the happy cloak. <laughs> and uh, so in my novel, Software, then my first cyberpunk novel, there's this creature called a happy cloak. So then I, I just, I had the happy cloak in several books and it was, uh, it was nice. 